Well, hey guys, happy Young Adults Night. Great to be here, as always. Uh, so tonight, uh, we are going to be talking about an account in Scripture, a, a story that, without a doubt, most of you have heard many, many times. In fact, it's one of the only, actually the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. So tonight, we're going to be looking at math, uh, I'm sorry, Mark's account. So if you have your Bibles... You can open, scroll, turn on, whatever it might be, to Mark chapter 6, will be in verses 30 to 44. As we get started, I just wanted to um, encourage us with one thing. Sometimes when we have familiar Bible stories and we have accounts in Scripture that we've heard a lot of times before, we can sort of sometimes relegate this into a category in our mind of something that we've heard a million times. We sort of know the punchline of the story. And this is just one of those things where we know that, yep, Jesus fed 5,000. God is awesome. God can do anything. And we leave it there. And I'm going to ask us tonight to not fall into that temptation. Because it is true that God is awesome. And it is true that God can do anything. But if we leave it there, I think we're going to miss the bigger point of seeing the man behind the story. Really looking at who Jesus is and how he is working in this situation and how therefore he can work in our situation specifically as well. Several years ago when I was uh, the youth pastor here, I took our student leadership group through a study of the book of Matthew. But we didn't look at the book of Matthew on the surface of what it was teaching Instead, we did a character study of the person of Jesus as we read through the the gospel of Matthew. And maybe there's even some people in this room that were part of that study uh, in years past while they were still in high school. But it was such an incredible glimpse into who Jesus is and being able to recognize what we can apply from his character and how he interacts in certain situations and with certain people. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. How many of you guys have seen the animated movie, The Lion King? Wow, is there seriously people without their hands up? <laughs> okay, most of us have seen Lion King. There's one scene in The Lion King where Simba, this, this cute little fluffy lion cub, and his friend Kiara, they find themselves in the bottom of this really scary shadow-encased canyon. And out of the shadows, these three hyenas come, baring their teeth and drooling. It's really scary, right? And they come approaching these two little lion cubs, and Simba, of course, in his bravery, he gets between Kiara and these hyenas, and he puffs up his chest, and with everything he has, he gives his most ominous little house cat roar that he can. And the hyenas, of course, are laughing, and they're like, oh, that was so cute, do it again. And they're, they're taunting, and they're threatening, and he... And he uh, takes another big inhale of air, and the next thing that comes out is this guttural, like, to-your-bones roar that these hyenas hear. And they are just shocked, and they fall over, and they, and they are just beside themselves with fear. But it wasn't Simba, was it? It was his dad, Mufasa. And it was that person behind the one that stood up and took action that was really the power behind this account. And that's what we're looking at tonight as we look at this miracle of 
Jesus. There are people that came forward. There are people that put themselves out there. But ultimately, it was God's power that enabled them to accomplish what they were accomplishing. And in the same way that it was Mufasa that ultimately saved the day, we're going to look to the story and understand a little bit clearer of who Jesus is. So in our text today, we're going to be starting in verse 30. Uh, verse 30. And it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went by themselves in a boat to a desolate place to be by themselves. So the, all that they had done, when, when the disciples were telling Jesus all they had done, that's a reference back to verse 7 when Jesus sends them out to do miracles and heal the sick and share the gospel. All the things that they were busy doing for the last several days, those are all the things that they were telling Jesus about. And he recognizes the fact that after all of this ministry, they were exhausted. And that Jesus is recommending that let's just get away for a while and let's rest and let's just go to a place where we can recuperate a little bit on our own. Have you ever felt like this, like the disciples, where they were so busy, they were so consumed, that it says they didn't even have time to eat? If we take a picture of sociology in the American life today, the cross-section of that life is going to be people who are completely overwhelmed, completely burned out, completely stressed out, feeling like they can't keep the wheels on, and that the rope of their life is just fraying. That's the cross-section that sociology would tell us the condition of the average American is today. The average U.S. family spends 37 minutes together every day. 37 minutes. And Jesus recognized that the disciples were kind of in this spot where they were just exhausted. They had been just redlining for a long time and he said, let's just get away. And there's two things that we should remember as Jesus recommends this. The first is how we spend our time is critically important. We don't want to just busy, be busy doing. We want to be busy doing the things that are most important in our life. Jesus says the way that we do things and how we spend our time is critically important. The second thing he says is that every single one of us needs time of rest. I know you think you're the exception. You're not. I know you think, I'm young, I've got tons of energy, I can just go all day and all night. We can't. We're not designed that way. God designed us to have some degree of rest. In verses 33 and 34, it goes on to say, Now many saw that they were going and they recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now let me just set the, the, the scene. I know that we've been talking about some geography here in young adults recently. So when Jesus and the disciples went away to get some rest, they got into a boat, and they started um, paddling in the Sea of Galilee. Now the first picture that we're going to show is an overview of Israel, and it should be uh, right here. So the small body of water to the north, that's the Sea of Galilee, and that's the one that the boat with the Jesus and his disciples were on. Now the next picture zooms into the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see on the north side, this, the, the city, this little town called Bethsaida. 
and that's where they were heading. There's really nothing else up there. So when Jesus and his disciples were row, row, rowing their boat up toward the north, everybody kind of knew that's the destination that they had. The next picture is, is more of a relief, and you can see that Bethsaida is up on the base of the hillside, and then right toward the bottom of that, you can see where it says the plain of Bethsaida. So as, as they are going toward that, there's this setting where Bethsaida is right up in the foothills, and the plains of Bethsaida are these flat areas surrounding the town or the village of Bethsaida. One more picture, and it shows the actual area that they would be at. I've had the opportunity to be to Israel two times, and both times I've been able to stand in this spot. And it's very easy to see, based on these plains and these flat spots and these open areas, how Jesus could have uh, amassed a crowd of 5,000 people and uh, been able to address them and feed them at that spot. So it's really a, a very neat picture of um, the geography and, and the setting that this particular story takes place. And the text here says that when people saw that they were rowing toward Bethsaida, all the people in the surrounding villages, they started moving toward the village, the town where Jesus and his disciples were heading. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been exhausted and looking forward to just getting away and decompressing and spending some me time, you guys know what that's like where you just need that? I probably would have been pretty annoyed to see all these people on these hillsides rushing toward Bethsaida where we're going. In fact, if I was Jesus, I might have been tempted to sort of have the sentiment of, come on, you guys. Don't you know that we've been helping people for several days? Don't you know that my cousin, John the Baptist, was just beheaded? We are totally exhausted. We're just trying to get away here a little bit. As I think about that sentiment in my own life, it, it makes me wonder, how in tune am I how in tune are you to the opportunities that God puts before us? Am I really ready in season and out of season for all that God wants to put before me and be ready to respond to in a way that shows Christ's love? Am I really in that spot? Or do I focus a little bit too much on my own needs, my own desires, and my own comforts? But that's not how Jesus responded it says in our text that he had compassion on the crowds. Why? Because they were really, really hungry and he was going to give them dinner. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Even in his exhaustion, and Jesus, by the way, was fully human. He was also fully God, but in his full humanity, he was exhausted and he needed rest. But even in that condition, he looked out at these people that were rushing toward this, this spot, this Bethsaida. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes it feels like people around us don't notice or don't care or that we're sometimes all alone in a situation. But even this sentiment can be a reminder that no matter what, Jesus will always be there for us. He will always love us and he will always have our back. No matter what. In the next several sets of verses, starting in verse 35, it says, When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, You give them something to eat. 
And then they responded, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? So the disciples are taking stock of the situation, right? That's what's happening in these verses. The disciples are like, we're kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. You saw the map. And we have all these people here, and it's getting really, really late. So our solution to this problem is that we should just send everybody back to the surrounding villages. It's already late. Let's not have it be completely pitch black when they're on their way home. And they can just go find themselves something to eat. And Jesus then, his answer to that is, how about if you guys give them something to eat? And you, you, can, you can almost hear the disciples' reaction, right? You can almost sense it. They kind of look at each other like, <laughs> seriously? There's like 5,000 people here. 200 denarii worth of bread we'd have to buy? A denarii, by the way, a denarius is a day's wage. And they need 200 days' wages just to feed the people bread. And so the disciples are like, is that really kind of what we're expected to do? That seems a little unreasonable, Jesus. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus was about to show them that ministry, even the ministry that they had just been doing, he's bringing that full circle. Ministry, disciples, is not all about you and what you can accomplish and your strengths and your gifts. No, no, no. Ministry, Jesus says in essence, is about me and what I'm able to accomplish through you. This is not, by the way, the first time that we see this happening in Scripture if you remember back in Judges, uh, God had given Gideon instructions to defeat the Midianites. Now, the Midianite army, by the way, was 120,000 strong. Gideon's army was 32,000, almost four to one they were outnumbered. But Gideon said, you know, I'm going to trust the Lord on this one. I think we're going to go ahead and do that. And then God spoke Judges chapter 7, verse 2. He says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you, your army, this 32,000, there's way too many of them to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See what God's saying? I don't want you to think that if you defeat them, even with four to one odds, I don't want you to think even for a minute that this is about you or that you were able to do this on your own. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell everybody that's scared about fighting the Midianites, just go home. No, no judgment, no big deal, just leave. 22,000 left, leaving 10,000 remaining. And now Gideon's like, oh man, 10,000 against 120,000. 12 to 1 odds, that's pretty rough. And God says, no, no, no. I think you still might be able to boast in that. So take them down and have them drink water from this, this uh, lake and all of those that put their head down and drink, send them home. Every one of them that pulls water up to their mouth and, and laps it with their tongue, those are the ones you keep. How many stayed? How many were remaining with Gideon? 300. 300. And God delivered them over the invading Midianite army. And only the conclusion that the Israelites were able to have is that God is good. We could never have done this on our own. You know the story of David and Goliath. It's not just about a shepherd boy that was brave and stubborn. It's a boy, about a boy that was willing, and God showed up and empowered him to do what he could never have done 
on his own. A third example, we see this with the disciples themselves. There's an example in Acts 4 where Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin council and they were asked, whose name are you doing all these teachings and all this ministry in? And they go on to tell the council about Jesus. There's a whole section in in chapter 4 of Acts about that. And then they say this, uh, it says this in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. It says, now when they, this is the, the members of the council, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They didn't see Peter and John for Peter and John. They looked at Peter and John and said, this is impossible. These are just some ordinary Joes, just like me. And and they recognized ultimately that they had been with Jesus. And isn't that what God has called our lives to be? A reflection of who Jesus is, not just a picture of who Steve is, or not just a picture of who you are. Jesus does the same thing again in this account. In verse 38, it says, And Jesus said to them, this is to his disciples, "Uh, How many loaves do you have? Why don't you go and see? And when they had found out, they came back and they said to Jesus, Five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish and the two fish among them all. The Gospel of John records the fact that It was actually a little boy who came forward and offered the the loaves and fish. This little boy stepped up when everybody else said, no, it can't be done, and gave excuses why. Nobody ever, ever would have thought that a little boy's lunch would have looked out on the plains that we saw a picture of, thousands and thousands of people, and said, this little boy's lunch is going to feed everybody. Nobody would have predicted that. And no matter how unlikely it seems, that God can use me or how unlikely it might seem to you that God could use you for his great, eternal, grand purposes, we have to remember that God is infinitely capable of doing just that. But it requires us to get off the bench, not to show our strength and to showcase what we can do, but just simply to be willing. Are we willing to step up when God says go? There's a story of a man who found himself in a desert, a vast desert of endless sand, the hot sun baking his body as he walks mile after mile, hour after hour. And with each passing moment, his dehydration is setting in. He's getting more parched, and he crests another sand dune, hoping beyond hope that he finds some little even puddle of water that can bring him relief. And after... Dune after dune, he gets to a point where he's losing hope. And he gets to a point where he's despairing. And he's about to give up. And he crests one last dune. And as he looks, he can't believe his eyes. He must be hallucinating. This can't be right. He sees a water pump a few feet in front of him. An old rusty pump. A metal handle and a curved spout. He can't believe it. He walks over to that 
that water pump, and he notices that there's a message attached to it. And with his hand that's, that's shaking with exposure, he grabs that message, and he begins to read the message, and here's what it says. If you're reading this, I assume that you're interested in obtaining water from this pump. But at the moment, the pump isn't primed and will yield no water for you. But don't fret. Follow my exact instructions, and you will have all the water that you need. If you dig down at the base of the pump for one foot, you will find a pint of water in a glass jar. Do not drink this water, it says. You must use exactly half of this water to pour it around a leather seal that has been dried out and encrusted by the the hot sun. That will cause the leather seal to swell up and regain its seal. And the other half of the water is to be poured down the front spout of the pump to prime the pipe to the underground well. If you do this, it will provide the suction necessary to draw the water up once you start pumping. Again, do not drink the water in the bottle. If you do, you and everybody else on their journey through this desert will be limited in their ability to extract the endless supply of water that could be yours if you would have followed these instructions. Please trust me. So what does he do? He has just a little bit. That's all he has. And he's parched. He's on the verge of death. But he can use that to multiply an endless supply of fresh water to renourish himself and his soul. And that's the story of what God does with me and what God does with you. God can do so much with so little. In this account, Jesus prays. He looks up to heaven and he trusted in God's power to accomplish the feeding of the 5,000. When we obey, when we're just willing, God will follow through on that. Now, just a, a note of caution on the side of this. Each one of us, our loaves and our fish, they look different from each other. Some people have loaves and fish, different skills, different things that they bring to the table that we might say, God, it isn't much. But I just want to trust you to do something with this. And I know that by your power you can. I give this to you, God. That's different for all of us. For some, it's an incredible ability to encourage people and to spend one-on-one time with them and build into their lives. For others, maybe it's music or maybe it's working with kids or any number of things. But I want to just caution us against looking at the basket of somebody else. We can sometimes get discouraged and be like, oh, man, their fish and loaves look a lot better than mine. Man, I've got wheat bread and they've got barley, you know, or whatever, whatever that thing might be. We, we, we're tempted to compare ourselves to other people and think, well, they're better at that or their gifts are different and that must mean they're better and the grass is always greener when it comes to that. But God says, no, I created you in my image. I gave you exactly what you need to be effective for the work that I've called you to. All I want you to do is just be willing. Be the little boy that says, it's not much, but here's my lunch. Jesus, do whatever you think is appropriate with that. And that's what Jesus did. In verse 42, it says that, and they all, the entire crowd, ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 
There were 12 baskets left over. Now, I, I really don't think that Jesus sort of miscalculated and be like, oh, there's actually 5,200 5, here. Oh, man, I was off. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think having leftover uh, baskets was a picture of Jesus' provision and his abundance to bless us and to do the impossible. And I don't have any really chapter and verse in Scripture to support this, but I personally kind of think that with the 12 baskets and the 12 disciples, was there maybe one leftover basket for each of the disciples to just give them a little bit of a word picture, a little bit of an illustration of the fact that, look, you can trust me. You don't have to stay in a spot where you're sort of chuckling to yourself when, when I say you feed them, that I have this and I want you to trust me and trust me with the outcome as well. In Ephesians 3, verse 20, it says, God is able to do abundantly, infinitely more than all that we can ask or imagine. In the Gospel of John, uh, it's recorded as saying, Jesus, after uh, everybody had eaten, the Gospel of John says, in Jesus' words, gather all the leftover fragments that none may be lost. He's not talking about bread and fish here. He's talking about people. Jesus didn't want any to be lost. He doesn't overlook anybody, and he desperately desires. He left the 99 to find the one. That's the heart of our Savior, and that's the heart that we need to trust as we follow him. There's so many things that we can take away from this passage. There's so so much that we can mine out of this and talk about, but I really want to leave us with five big application points as we uh, wrap up our time together. The first thing is that this account is so much more than Jesus just performing a miracle. It's so much more than God is really cool, he can do anything. It's so much more than that. It gives us a front and center glimpse of who Jesus is and what his heart is all about. Let me just, under this point, let me just give us five real quick reminders of of who we saw that Jesus is. Jesus cares about how we spend our time and he cares that we get good rest. That's how he designed us And that's what we need to make sure that we're operating at our best for him. We also see that Jesus never sees us as an interruption, but we are instead are the very reason that he came. We also learn about Jesus that he is not interested just in fulfilling our material needs, not a genie in a lamp that says, God, I really want this thing or this job or this whatever it might be. But even more than that, he truly wants transformed hearts and lives in his people. We also see that Jesus is, um, never views anybody as insignificant. He never overlooks anybody, but instead he recognizes that every single person has infinite value and that they can be used no matter who they are and what is inside their own baskets. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter 4.10, it says every one of us, everyone who's a believer in Jesus has been given at least one spiritual gift to be used to build up the body and share the gospel. Everybody. Jesus overlooks nobody. And the, the last thing under this first point that we see about Jesus is that he is able to do immeasurably, infinitely beyond what we can even imagine. We don't have to limit our thought about how God can work in the situation based on our own abilities because it's not about us. It's about him. The second big takeaway from this passage that we have tonight is that God using us does not depend on our own capabilities. 
Remember, God uses willing hearts committed to him to accomplish what only he can. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Look, I planted all these seeds and Apollos watered all these seeds, but it's God that gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters, they're nothing. It's all about God who gives the growth. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. Remember, we are not the end game. It all is our willingness that allows God to work through us and accomplish his purposes. Third, when God works in people's lives through our fish and loaves contributions, it's ultimately so that we and other people see him not to take glory for ourselves. It's not a showcase for us to be like, I'm a you know, Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, and I've got these skills, and I'm going to just really flaunt these things. That's, that's not at all what God is saying. The little boy was a willing participant in the story, but he wasn't the center stage of the story. Jesus was. And all that we do and all of our efforts all that point back to him. Fourth, we have to realize that the satisfaction of the people in the crowd, verse 42, that satisfaction really was describing them having full bellies. But Jesus didn't come just to satiate us. Instead, it was one more way in this miracle that he desired to show who he really is, the God in flesh Savior of the world. And that's why in John's account, Jesus went on to explain that he is the bread of life. It would be akin to, uh, I know this sounds ridiculous, but if we had a telescope that was pointing out this window after dark, and I told you that this telescope was like a James Webb version, I'm going to show you like the most unbelievable pictures of the cosmos. How many of you guys have seen the pictures of the James Webb telescope online? Pretty unbelievable, right? But I'm going to show you a picture of some of the cosmos because this telescope is able to do that. And as you sort of bend down to look in that lens, you see a reflection of yourself in that lens before you put your eye to that actual lens. And you stop there and you're like, wow, amazing. (laughs) Did you see that? Unbelievable. And you're just fixating on how blown away you are by seeing your own reflection in the lens of this telescope. And I know that sounds silly and it sounds completely unlike anything any of us would do, but when we miss the point of allowing God to be used by us to showcase the Savior of the world, that's exactly what we're doing. Let it not derail us from remembering who God is. When I was in college, um, me and several friends of mine from our campus ministry, uh, we spent some time at the student union area, which a lot of people did, and um, we were doing um, some preparation work for the ministry night that we had coming up, and there was a a young man that came up to us and asked us what we were doing. Um, And we had a conversation with him. Turns out that he is from Nepal, and he had a, a Hindu background, and he's um, professing Hindu. And he asked us a lot of really great questions, and we um, got to know this, uh, this young man. His name is Sunil Shreshta. And over time, uh, we built a friendship with this young man, and um, the next year, when it came down to it, we ended up um, needing another roommate, and we asked Sunil if he would be willing to join us in our uh, apartment as a roommate. And he was very excited about that, and he was a very, very inquisitive young man. And um, we sort of really felt like that was God's 
leading in our lives to ask him to join us, to, to live with us. And I can't tell you how many nights of sleep I lost. I know I'm breaking the rule about rest, but how many nights of sleep I rest, uh, of rest I lost sitting up with Sunil, talking to him about who God is, why we believe in Jesus, what that means for people. It was the most incredible series of conversations uh, among the top conversations in my life. And I remember one night in particular, Sunil was really, really distraught. And he was not that kind of, kind of guy at all. He was very jovial, very easy to talk to, and he was really distraught. He said, you know, Steve and my other roommate, Neil, here's the deal. I have heard and understood and comprehend exactly everything that you're telling me. And the truth is, I think you're right. I think Jesus truly is who he said he was. I think he really did die on the cross for our sins, and I, I really truly think that God is probably calling me to respond to that. My family back in Nepal, though, are very devout Hindus, and if I make this decision to follow Jesus, it's most likely that they will disown me. I won't have a family anymore on this earth, and I'm really wrestling with that. And we, of course, talked through that with them and prayed through that with them, and that's a hard situation. I mean, ultimately, this has to be something that Sunil himself comes to the conclusion on. And it came to be that, that one night, through tears and through joy, Sunil Shrestha prayed and received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And it was an unbelievable experience. And true to his prediction, he shared this news with his family, and it was not pretty. Um, it was a, a very, very, very difficult situation in the life of his family. But um, they didn't disown him. They didn't totally cast him out. In fact... If you fast forward over the course of the next couple of years, Sunil had an opportunity to share with them what God has done in his life and why. Why he made this decision to follow Jesus. His family members came to know Jesus as their savior. And now, if you're to look up Sunil online, he has a ministry in the U.S. to other Hindus to share the gospel with them and to present to them the reasons for the hope in Jesus. It has nothing to do with me and my roommates. It's foolish to think it does. But we are willing to say, we really value your friendship. Why don't you live with us? Why don't we pour into this relationship and pour into these conversations? That's what's important. The fifth and final application point is that Jesus feeding the 5,000, this miracle, um, there's so much more for us to learn. This is where it ties into our story with Sue Neal. It's not just about the story. Ultimately, the miracles of Jesus are the point to the greatest miracle that mankind has ever known, redeeming sinners back to a place of righteousness. The Bible says that every single one of us has sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory, and that makes us an enemy of God. And if we were to die in that state, we face an eternal separation from him in a literal eternal hell. That's a big, big, big problem for humanity. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live among us and live out the perfect life that we are supposed to live. And then he died on the cross and allowed God to punish him, his own son, instead for our sins when we deserved it. Jesus says, God, 
I know they're guilty and I know I'm not. But make me sin so that they might become righteousness. Crush me instead. Pour out your wrath on me, not on them, and allow them to go free. That's what the miracles of Jesus is about. It's not about emotions. It's not about us. It's not even about a character study. It's about knowing Jesus and allowing the fish and loaves contributions in our lives to make him known to other people as well. And I pray that that reality is yours as well today. And if it's not, please talk to your leaders about what it means to make a commitment, just like Sunil Shreshta prayed, and make that same commitment to follow Jesus. You will never regret it, and you will never look back. Let me pray for us, and then we can uh, dismiss the life groups. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. God, we are humbled that we can come before you and get in your word and use uh, what we have, Father, as insignificant as it sometimes feels, to get off the bench and to be willing to offer to you to multiply in whatever way you see fit. God, we give you glory for it. We pray that this would always point us toward Jesus and that it would also be an opportunity for us to point others toward him as well. Thank you for this night. Thank you for the ability that we have to be together. And I pray that you would bless our discussion on these things as well this evening. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.